Starting and running your own company, it's not for everyone. But for those who have done it, it can be exhilarating, exhausting, and easily the hardest thing they've ever done. So we decided to go out and talk to some of those people and find out what they've learned, what they'd repeat, and what they'll never do again. We'll hear stories from their first year, then from the period when they realize they're going to survive, and how they intend to position their companies for the future. We'll find out what a CEO's normal day is like, how they build and manage their teams, what it's done to their personal lives, and finally, when is the time to move on? Join us for CEO 101, a limited series of deep looks at people who are their own boss, for better or for worse. Welcome to another episode of CEO 101, a series of special episodes in which we talk to and about CEOs of startup companies. I'm your host, Richard Miles. Today, my guest is Ron Taro, CEO of a number of companies, as well as an advisor and investor in many more. Welcome to the show, Ron. It's very nice to be here. Thanks for having me. So why don't we start with an overview of your career? You've done a lot of things. We just were talking about your role in a number of companies at various stages and levels. So mm-hmm. why don't you give a brief summary of where you started and what you're doing now? Yeah. So I started as a nerd, software engineer, and I really came to the technical track. My background was in mathematics and sciences. I ended up getting hired by IBM in IBM Labs. And so was on product teams, software engineering teams, went through product marketing and product management jobs there where I began to focus not just on making the product, but deciding what should be in the product. I jumped out like a crazy person one day, went into consulting and joined Ernst & Young, ended up in a leadership position in the management consulting group, which focused on technology companies. So it was basically back to what should we make? Why should we make it? Who should we sell it to? Those types of things. Did that for a bunch of years. In the meantime, a couple of my pals had started a software company here in Florida, and I was based in Minnesota at the time. I did work at IBM in Boca Raton, if you're into Florida-centric conversation. And they had started a company. I had started advising it. I married one of them. My wife was one of the founders of this company. And that company is a telecommunications software platform. And we took that company, bootstrapping it with no investment, actually, and ended up putting it out into, I think, what, 30, 40 countries. By the time we left, its largest market segment was in hotels and resorts. So we had a pretty big market share. We ultimately sold that company to what is now part of Cisco WebEx, actually. And it's gone through the usual chopping up, getting acquired by a public company, where I was a public company vice president for several years as part of the arrangement. I went along with the desks and the pencils in that. So since exiting all of that, I've been an advisor in the incubators here in the state with the university system. I'm in the leadership of the longest standing angel syndicate for investment in startups. So I deal with a lot of that. And that's about it. And I've been a personal angel investor along with my wife, Dina, around the state. So that's basically it. I'm a nerd turned business person, so but still likes to do macros on spreadsheets or something. Right. So. Yeah. Nerd turned management consultant turned investor. So it's yeah, uh, something like that. Yeah, you're yeah. perfect for a show, Ron. <laughs> perfect. You've had a great experience in that you are able to both be an outsider and an insider in watching the, this process unfold of companies starting and then growing and then getting sold from a number of different angles. Why don't we start with what's the biggest difference between watching it from the outside, like as an advisor or something, and actually doing it yourself? When you actually did that yourself with your wife, that company, were there things that you thought like, wow, I thought I knew what this process is like, but this is something nobody told me about? I guess I would look at it this way. In running an early stage company in whatever form, you are absolutely single-minded. And I would say that what I know today 
that I didn't know then is probably I have more context in seeing some of the moves that we made. So we may have turned left, we should have turned right. And seeing lots of companies making left and right turns, you begin to look at it and say, hmm, we could have thought about that problem way differently. Now, I would say this, that in our case, I think we made most of the fundamentally right decisions. And we can kind of walk through the life cycle of that company, when to get out of the company and sell it. All that stuff was being driven by stuff. But when you run a company, the thing that you need to be particularly careful of, especially as an early one, is you are single-minded in your vision. And as a practical matter, what you don't know can kill you. And so I think once you've again been through this a couple of times, you step back, you begin to see all of those other dangers. There's a counter argument, by the way, which would be your ignorance and optimism is the reason you'll succeed. But I guess I'm a little bit more hardened by, by some of that. Let's get granular here and talk about the very, very beginning, both from your own experience and companies that you've helped start or advise. Mm -hmm. The first maybe 30 to 60 days where you've got a founder or a couple of founders, they're very excited. They got a lot of energy. Why don't we start with the mistakes? The mistakes are always fun to talk about, right? What are sure. some of the mistakes that people make in the first few weeks that they really come to regret later on? And maybe they don't even know that they're mistakes when they're making them in that first 30 or 60 days. Right. What have you seen? Yeah, I'll well, start with a very basic one. Should you even bother? Is this a good idea? <laughs> Because I think one of the things when you see a founder is they're going to walk into this and they believe what they believe. And I'll actually use the test with New World Angels, which is the angel syndicate that I'm part of and leadership of, is this idea you have is derivative. It's not better enough from anything else out there. It's not enough to dislodge the current state. The way to look at that would be, I have a new idea for electronic banking, but can I get everybody to take everything out of this bank, including the electronic banking and move it to that bank? There's a speed bump. There's something here. You're 10% better, but it's 20% too much hassle to do it. And so one of the big challenges is you see a lot of folks coming into incubators and applying or coming to me for advisory. It is, I don't know, has this been done before? And if it has, you better have some sort of transformative argument. I think it was Clayton Christensen. He was one of the Harvard guys that wrote a book. Is this sustaining innovation, meaning it's incrementally improving stuff up? Or is it disruptive? It restructures how something is done fundamentally. Obviously, you want a big success, it has to be fundamentally different, not just a flavor. It's sort of like there's Uber and then there's Uber for pizzas. It's like, okay, you can make a living at that. And by the way, don't want to discourage you, but it may not be an investable company. And it may be a company that's only going to get to be this big because just by the nature of how you defined it in the first place. So Part one is, is it even an idea that's going to be able to, in effect, dislodge what's already there, if there is something there, or is it clear sailing? And the other is, is it disruptive? It's just incrementally improving something already exists. I mean, obviously, you want to be disruptive. There's another great book out there, the, the Blue Ocean Strategies book that I always talk about, which is, as a startup, this whole idea of derivative ideas. I'm Uber Pizza. It's like, well, if Uber gets into pizzas, you're dead. You're, you're not sailing in open ocean. You're sailing in the shipping lanes. And so you better have a pretty good argument for why you think you're going to be able to stay afloat. New captain, small boat, limited gas, meaning financing. So you end up being in a little bit of a challenging spot. So really, before you imagine a company, you have to sort of hack your insight, if you will, and say, yeah, I really believe that there's insight here. There's an engineer's disease, and I can make fun of engineers because I used to be one, which is because I can build it, I should. <laughs> And that's not the case. When you look at a lot of products, you see a lot of technology that was built by a technical person that is logically and intellectually interesting and economically going to sit around. For me, it's, it's like very first thing, are you on to something here, something transformative? And we can talk a little bit about how you might evaluate that. That's definitely a, uh, the very first thing I look at. 
So you've been, I'm sure, pitched a bunch of times. You've been to a lot of these pitch competitions and so on. You've seen probably thousands of presentations by typically of a youngish or very excited team mm-hmm. and probably a bunch of engineers. And they're on to mm-hmm. something. They've proved it somewhat and it's withstood a few proof of concept. Have you developed six cents is not really what I'm getting at here, but do you have like rules of thumb, five or six things that for you, either you'll say like, nope, I'm done. Next. You see right, right away, apart from what you just talked about, say, is it a derivative idea? And then on the other side, when a same team that if they say something, you go, okay, I'm going to go get that guy's business card, or I'm going to call him back because there's something about their structure. Do you have like a mental checklist or is every presentation so generous? You just figure it out after you've heard the presentation. So actually, not only do I have opinions here, I actually have written a blog post. If you go to the newworldangels.com blog, there's a post out there called Backtesting, Why We Said No, essentially. So you just layered it right into a whole set of things that could take an hour. So clearly it's the idea. You haven't differentiated the idea in the marketplace, and that's a big deal. But the other one that I look very quickly towards is the structure of the team. Again, I should put some context here. I'm a tech guy right? So if we're talking about opening a restaurant and marketing shoelaces, boy, am I the wrong person, right? It's all a mystery to me. I'm a straight up core software person. But when I look at a team that's bringing a technology product, if not out of the university, maybe even just uh, in open market, I'm going to go, who are the founders? My favorite founders are one business person that knows the market space where they think it's going to apply and one technology person who can make stuff, period. If you have a business person who's hiring out disinterested parties to make stuff, it's a risk. Doesn't mean no, but I'm going to worry that if the money runs out, all the cash is running out the door to the consulting firm or whoever it's going to be. So very much I look at what that team looks like and what their direct domain knowledge happens to be inside of it. So you have a team that seems logical. I begin to look at the market size. It's called TAM. People talk about total addressable market or serviceable market. And I always do this in dollars. It's like, all right, this is great. This is really cool. And there's 27 people in the world who would use this. Mm-hmm. So in order for it to be exciting, they each need to pay $100 million, right? <laughs> I'm making numbers up, by the way. But it's this idea that you have a market size that's way too narrow. And so I'm going to worry about as an investor. Now, again, you may look at this and you may say, yeah, this is a good product and it deserves to be in the world. But from an investor standpoint, you're going to have an uphill battle with what's being examined. Forming a company is a team sport. I'll use Florida analogy here, but if the founder gets eaten by an alligator, what happens? And the answer should be, well, there's three more to carry on the journey, right? Three more for the alligator to snack on. <laughs> That's right. So this whole idea of that is a big deal. And so all of this is back to the design of your company, right? What are you trying to do? Where are you focused? Does it matter? Is it big? Those sorts of things. And and by the way, this is the theme you'll see over and over again with investors, especially. But there's a reason it's not just because investors want to make a lot of money. It's actually very rational. If I go back to running our company, we had lessons learned, but we had a total addressable market for our company and that we dominated this total addressable market pretty successfully. We made a choice to not change industries, but to go global across one industry. Those types of decisions. So in essence, when you would look at our company, you would have said, okay, it's a niche product, except globally, it's a big niche, right? That kind of idea. 
And so those are the kind of decisions you're forced to make with left and right turns. We think we made the right one because it made us a pure play to be acquired one day. I want to yeah. follow up on something you said. Yeah. Your ideal team is that you've got a, an inventor and a business person. But I'm sure you've seen, what we've seen in the Cade Prize competition, particularly coming out of research universities, you have the professor, right? Or you have the scientists or whatever, and they've mm-hmm. got some grad students with them or whatnot. They love their idea. They're smart people and they figure how hard can it be to start and run a company, right? And your heart kind of aches for them because you want to say you need to stay in the lab. Who has that tough conversation? Is that your job when they bring you along as an advisor or as an investor, for instance, Mm -hmm. is one of the first conversations you have is say, look, professor, you need to stick to the research and the development of the idea and the product. And you need somebody who knows how to do this. I'm guessing the successful ones listen to you and the ones that don't listen to you, what happens to them? I'll give you the losing argument, which is, hey, professor, do you want 100% of zero or do you want 50% of a lot? There's a question here. It's hard to succeed in most of these companies. Never say never, but aspirationally, there's always this idea that being the CEO might be cool. However, if you look at the pain in the neck that that job can be, even as a college professor, I've been on both sides of the technology versus business fence. Some days I really miss the core technology story. The reality is, is that you're not going to get momentum on a company very easily by being a part-timer, especially a professor. And you see it again and again where they don't get funded. The best thing you could do as a college professor would be back to my one maker, one business person that can carry and coordinate. And if you're a member of the Academy of Arts and Sciences or whatever the case might be, why would you check out of that? Where's your next idea? What's your next core research? It'd be better as a professor to have a portfolio of companies that you have a significant interest in that you were the founding insight right? The technology, whatever the case might be. And you let those things grow and nurture because the attention required, you have to choose. You can't be both. And there are a lot of PhDs who jumped out of academia to run companies, but that's the choice you must make, I think, at the end of the day. So you can rationalize it for a little while, but I know personally a number of folks that just have not been funded because they insist on being CEO as a professor or as a doctor or something like that. And so the funding dries up because nobody wants to fund a hobby right? Or a side hustle. My money's at risk and you're part-timing me. Not going to happen. Now, again, if you can make it all work without any money up from outside or whatever, but basically go find your best friend, CEO, and found it together. And then you can be chief science officer and you can contribute intellectual property into the business in really interesting ways. And you get all the benefit, none of the work, you stay to your passions. And so I think you have to be honest to yourself too. Do you want to be a professor? If that's where you want, you want the intellectual rigor to in effect break down new territory. If that's what energizes you, great. If you have that one idea, you think it's it, then you got to go all in. The counter argument you hear from these researchers is they, they say, yeah, I recognize I need somebody with a business background, but these people really need to understand the core idea and the core principle here. And sometimes the core principles are fairly sophisticated, like particularly in the healthcare field or in tech field. Mm-hmm. So if a business person doesn't really get the technology, understand it, right? They're probably of limited use because they may have trouble mm-hmm. visualizing or imagining the application of that technology if they don't really understand how the technology works. Okay. I would argue a little bit differently. All you described was your requirements and recruiting for a CEO. You're not going to get a CEO who did real estate management. No offense to real estate managers. That's an entire industry that has a focus. If indeed, and we've done a series of investments in med tech. So basically what you need is somebody who understands the marketplace for these technologies. Here's the problem with investing in research. 
Science is not the thing that adds value. It's the application of the science in the marketplace. So you need somebody who knows the marketplace. So you have to go to a professor and you have to say, hey, you know the science. Now you need somebody who needs to know the application space for the science. And that's different. They don't have to be you, but they have to be somebody who is, in effect, creating value through the application of the technology. That's a different thought process. That's a quite different thought process because at some point it has to be commercialized. Now, if you're just busy selling patents, if you will, you can do that. Then hire a patent troll. They'll know how to do all that stuff too. So you still have somebody who's going to spend all their time thinking about that. So there's an intellectual foundation for a business and there's an application foundation if you want to think of it that way, maybe. So you still really haven't defeated the argument. My two-person model is still the best model. And that's what should be pursued to, to create value. You know, I've been in the consulting world, which is sort of the intellectualization of business, right? right? Which is all about strategies and frameworks and methods. And I worked in a think tank with Ernst & Young for a number of years doing this kind of published work. I get the academic business divide. The reality is, is putting something in the marketplace takes both, period. Yeah. So it sounds like important advice number one is it's not enough to get somebody with a generic business background or business skills. You really need to have somebody who understands that particular market in which you're trying to enter with your technology. I came out of networks and networks and telecommunication. And there's some young, motivated types that can come up those learning curves. And that's all great. But listen, if you want a CEO, you probably want somebody who knows how telecom works all the better, right? I'm going to get back to what you don't know can kill you, right? So they bring actually wisdom that an academic probably wouldn't bring to the business. So let's talk about the strategy and the frameworks now. Let's imagine a company, and I'm sure you've got real world examples of, let's say they've gone through their first year, they've launched, they're getting revenue, they're doing pretty well, they're starting to grow, but then they face some serious choices, right? Do we grow in this direction or that direction? You start having to make significant trade-offs in terms of hires or just start hiring like crazy. What are some of the pitfalls, let's say, after a successful year one that companies make in terms of a strategic direction after that first 365 days? So I'll change your 365 days because I'll let that flex and I'm going to look for certain milestones. So I carve up a company lifestyle this way is somebody's in the phase of hacking value. It's the idea that I have a technology and I am busy refining potential uses for it and testing that. A good program in that startup type of stuff, but i I think most of the academic world has seen the i program. If you want NSF funding, et cetera, there's i is certainly a help to that process. But this is the idea of before I build it, should I, right? Or in what should it do? So this is the idea of hacking your insight, right? Getting that really polished in such a way that you have an insight and you know how it's going to be applied, then build a prototype. So I'm going to look at a company first and say, where are you at with that? And have you established that as a phase? Second thing I want to look at is, okay, let's hack product market fit. Product market fit is this idea that somehow the right set of features and it's the right price, and you've demonstrated that by a bunch of things, like maybe selling it to a few people. And so hacking product market fit to me is you're done with that based on basically a quick check. Are you having to force customers to take this product or are they excited to take it? We can talk about how to do that. And you're going to test your different ways to sell it and your messages and stuff like that. And then third, you're going to hack growth. And hack growth is another way of saying you're going to hire more salespeople and you're going to begin to accelerate because things start to get repeatable right? Here's the problem. If you haven't properly had your product market fit and now you start hiring salespeople, guess what happens? They work really, really hard and they don't sell a lot. Or worse yet, they do sell something. Customer doesn't like it and is always yelling at you. And maybe they stop using it. So what's going on? The ones who went through and, and did this in steps, it's not a calendar step. It's sort of like a testing thing almost to say, I have insight. I have fit. Now I'm going to chase growth. 
And then you start hiring salespeople and evolving your messages and you decide whether you're going to use in-house people or whatever, and that lots of different things can go on. But that's how I look at it. And you can see more often than not, that's how companies get stuck is they actually didn't do the first two steps. The other interesting thing that you see with companies is you can look at the marketplace crossing the chasm, that guy, this idea that you've got innovators and early adopters. And when you're a new company, brand new product, and this idea that you have these innovators and early adopters, and when you're first starting a company, you have a brand new product. The tendency is to take the product out there and convince everybody of how great it is. And if you did your insight right, what you really want to do is just look for all the people who are desperate to have it. There are certain people that a narrow range of people who will be fast adopters to this. It could be people with a huge problem and they don't care about the amount of risk it takes on a new company. Somebody who's the perfect fit for the product. So you're looking for people with perfect fit, not trying to convince the rest of the world that you have the next big thing. You'll see a lot of folks doing a lot of presenting. And what they haven't done is they haven't narrowed everything down into a nice, tight message to a very tight group of people. And so they burn weeks and months, even a year or two, breaking their pick because they're attacking the wrong folks. The other side of that is you want the risk takers, the people who have such a big problem, they'll take a risk on you, right? And what you're going to have is the big corporates. Everybody says, I want to sell this. I want so-and-so to buy it. Big NASDAQ, New York Stock Exchange company. The reality is, is those folks more often than not are managing risk of technology acquisition along with innovation. You need somebody who needs the innovation because they're desperate for it. So I watch where people are on the cycle of early stage. And what you find is that some people rush it and fail late after they've collected a lot of money, by the way, from investors or worse yet, from their mom. So now you're sitting there going, well, what happened here? Well, you weren't quite defined in what your product was. It's interesting. The story of our company really was similar to this, which was we built a piece of software that was essentially a middleware to use software terms. And we put that software into very select companies that were very innovative and had very sophisticated requirements that only we could do. And so we found that one and then this one and picked our way individually through the group until we said, okay, this is a story that's turning out to be repeatable with everybody else and we refined it. So it happens that way in real life. If you try to circumvent it, you lose. Let's talk some about CEOs as managers. You referred earlier to the life cycle of an early stage company. And you start out, say, with four or five people on your team. It's, it's more like a family or, or basketball team than it is a company, right? Because everyone knows each other. It's very close. And then you get a little bit bigger. Maybe now you're 25 or 30 employees. And then one day you're 150, 200 employees. Yeah. And that obviously requires a different management structure, a different management style as you start growing the company in size and scope. How many CEOs are able to successfully make that transition from five people working for them to 200 people working for them? And how often is the case where somebody says, you know what? All I ever want to do is manage startups. I don't want to manage a big company. It's not fun. It's too bureaucratic, blah, blah, blah. What is the range of outcomes that you've seen? Well, actually, you described it. Let me just put it this way, maybe. Let's just talk about growth of a, a CEO. So I started a company, it's getting bigger. How do I have to change personally, right? Now, I came into a small company from a large, so I had some visibility on what's it's like to manage a more complex environment, I suppose. You go as a founder and a CEO to, in effect, managing a product and customers, right? and building a product, if you will, to, in effect, building an organization. So it's almost better to view what you're building as a machine. It's a machine where if you actually step back from it, the machine keeps running. 
right? So you see a lot of CEOs who, and they're right in the short term, they can probably do everybody's job better than the person they hired. This becomes untrue as time goes on, or less true anyway, probably even untrue. And so they hold on to stuff too long. If you show me an overwhelmed manager, the first thing I look for is a delegation problem where they're not viewing the organization as an organism that care and feeding, if you will, and they haven't spread things out. And the real telling thing happens when you become a manager of managers. That's the break point where it forces you down this road. So if you're reaching into your managers or over your managers, then you're just in the wrong headspace. So to me, the growth thing is you have to then begin to say, okay, how do I set up structures and communication so that everybody knows what I know, believes what I believe, is seeking what I seek, KPIs, to use fancy terms, key performance indicators. It's just to design the organization a little bit so everybody's a believer. Listen, Elon Musk is great. He knows how to do this intuitively, which is our mission is to get to the moon, right? Who believes that we should be on the moon? So he's got a whole organization absolutely energized to this big idea and lining everything up to it. Here's all the steps. And that's the big thing is that basic transition away from being the best at everything and the person who's best at moving the chess pieces around, if you want to think of it that way, or best at designing ways that everybody can get stuff done faster. You don't give up everything you know, you choose. So for me, an example of how we sold early on, I sold because we're not venture back. So I was selling the product, if you will. Ended up then having a sales group. In the sales group, they would, in effect, do some selling, but I would focus on very strategic things. Like this customer right over here has to be the one that we get next, Marriott or something. And so I'm actively involved in that because it had a material impact. But once we got Marriott Corporate on board, getting every Marriott hotel to, in effect, use our product, I had an entire team that could drive that. So you begin to move yourself into something and then back out. You look at the messaging, how you're positioning. So in our case, it was strategic impact sales, and then also the product roadmap. What are we making and why? One of the most telling things, because I obsess on Musk probably too much, is he's not the CEO. He was, but if you look at where he spent his time, he spent it as chief product officer, chief engineer. He's very focused because the product is what makes the business as a foundation, and then its application and alignment to the marketplace a second. Those are the two things. If you have a CFO, the CFO makes sure that Lamani's not running out the door wrong or something. But those are not the core things for a CEO. The CEO is what are we making, who are we making it for, and why does it matter, et cetera. And that's until you go public. And even then, still that. Do you see that often where a founder, the idea person says, I just want to stick with product, Mm -hmm. developing product. That's what I love. Is that fairly common? One of the reasons I came into our company was our CTO and COO were like, we really don't want to run this for CTO. He just really wanted to stay on the product side. That's all I wanted to do. And by the way, that's a very honest self-assessment just to say, this is not something I want to do. You can still own a huge percentage equity of a company and do profoundly well, but you just don't want to go through the brain damage of that other job over there. And by the way, since you are a founder, you get to pick your job. So why shouldn't you? I actually have a lot of respect for that. The idea that, especially with technical co-founders, is to say, I want to be on the technical track. I don't want to be a CEO. I don't want to be dealing with every HR issue and financial and market this and blah, blah, blah. I want to design and make products. That's hugely valid and maybe even desirable. (laughs) If I were to go back. Ron, why don't we conclude with something you said at the very beginning? You mentioned if you could give yourself advice, young Rontero advice from the older Rontero, what would it be in terms of lessons learned? Let's say you've got the young idealistic tech guy, 22, 23, or tech woman, and they're going to go conquer the world, start the next Facebook, whatever. What do you think their older selves will be telling them in, in 20 years? 
at the end of the day, I end up getting rather tactical. I've been asked this before and I end up getting, I would have made this decision differently. But in general, if I were looking at all of it, I would have much more peripheral vision than I did. In some sense, we were pretty good at this, but not good enough. So the idea that we could have gone into other verticals faster, that we could have accelerated faster, that we were a little bit too conservative in what we were up to. Now, the reality is it turned out okay. But I would say that there's an element of luck to that that is significantly large. <laughs> so we beat the odds. In some sense, it was our success, but it was also probably the limiting factor of the company. So in a lot of ways, there's a tendency to try to make what you're doing today better, more efficient, more whatever. And sometimes there's a breakout idea that you should be focused on to really grow the company. You could reasonably argue that we didn't have enough peripheral vision to make a bunch of decisions or even see the decisions to be made. And so the advice to myself would be to get wider, faster on what's going on with mega trends, et cetera. I'm like 75% convinced of what I just told you. You know, we pivoted different products in different markets. And the other is a strictly technical one and maybe more tactical too, but it was really fundamental. There's this thing called technical debt in software. And technical debt is this idea that you designed a product that has an architecture, but as you grow, the architecture is not so cool. It doesn't support the growth or better yet, it sort of turns into a hairball and you've been adding this and adding that and customer A wants this and customer B and you lose control of the core product. And I would say that we suffered from a technical debt issue because as an early company in our segment, we said yes to everybody. Sure, we'll do that. Sure, we'll do that. And we did not take a step back and abstract what we're doing, getting back to peripheral vision. Why are we doing this, right? What's the larger context? And so we literally had to take a year pause on our product to say, it's time to remodel the house. We should have been remodeling the whole way and then also abstracting. And so this is very much a software technology CEO problem, very specific to my world. But this idea that you sort of lost control of your code base. And so now every time you wanted to do an update, it took you 47 horses and a mule to get a new release out when it should have just been a horse. You end up with a slower and slower product cycle. And so one of the big lessons on the technical side was to really approach, I think, the software engineering story differently, but we survived. I actually have one final question, both from your personal experience and what you've seen. What does being a CEO do to somebody's personal life? Because everyone thinks like, I want to be my own boss. That's the best thing in the world. But then once you are, you realize that you've exchanged some freedom for responsibility, right? Part of being your own boss is you have to worry literally for a time, at least about just about everything. You don't really get to go home at 5 p.m. or 6 p.m. and check out and then show up at work the next day. You are the person. What right. was that like for you? And what has it been like for others that you've seen in that position? Well, I thought about my business every day of the week <laughs> <laughs> and pretty much all day. So let me give you the, the motivation. There's a moral case for a CEO, especially startups, with deep respect to startups. What you have is you're changing the world in a positive way. You're creating something that will improve something for somebody somewhere. And so if you have a passion for that, that's pretty cool. And that is a motivation. I find that CEOs that care about money, it's a crappy and soul-deadening way to approach life. Money is a byproduct of changing the world in a cool way. And so if you're chasing money, then you're just chasing money and there's no excitement. Then work is work. You're slave to a dollar rather than slave to change. I think one of the things I heard, I always sort of kept them back in my mind is if you're a CEO in these companies, what you're trying to do is it's not about you making a product. It's about you solving a problem in the world for somebody. And and so stay focused on the product or the problem. And with that focus, everything else takes care of itself. It's its own joy. You made this industry better. You made this customer better. You made the world better. Something to that effect. That's a huge personal motivation and something worth chasing. Back to, are you in the business of making profitable rockets or are we trying to get to Mars? 
And what's the big calling here? And so I think as a CEO, if you have that, then everything else kind of gets easy and you start blending work, play, and purpose all together in one thing. And that's much better than being a slave to a dollar. Ron, thank you very much for joining me today on CEO 101. Lots of good advice. I hope all of your clients and your companies are doing well and do well and look forward to having you back on the show at some point. Cool. Hey, it was very nice meeting you. Radio Cade is produced by the Cade Museum for Creativity and Invention, located in Gainesville, Florida. Richard Miles is the podcast host, and Ellie Tom coordinates inventor interviews. Podcasts are recorded at Hardwood Soundstage and edited and mixed by Bob McPeak. The Radio Cade theme song was produced and performed by Tracy Collins and features violinist Jacob Lawson.